Okay, we're going to go ahead and get started uh, this morning. Happy Mother's Day to all of y'all. Um, actually, we normally, I, I don't know what the attendance was this morning, but um, when other than Christmas and Easter type days, what, what do you think one of the biggest and most well-attended days of the church is? Mother's Day, right? One of the worst attended? Father's Day, right. <laughs> Because you know what happened. I mean, it, I'm not talking about anybody in this room, but you say it would be really nice for the family to come to church together on Sunday. And dads are like, if y'all want to come watch me play golf, that'd be great. <laughs> and I can, I can understand that. I can understand that. So if you're here uh, by hook or by crook, um, God wanted you here. Um, okay. Let folks wander in, get their coffee. There are seats in the front if y'all want them. All right, we're continuing through uh, the book of Acts. And really all we're doing is we're just talking, what did the early church look like? A lot of people say, oh, well, you know, we want to be more and more like the early church. I'm not necessarily like that because eventually we're going to get to Ananias and Sapphira. And, um, and they lied about something and God struck them dead. And so when people are like, oh, we want to go back to the early church as if it were all sunshine and lollipops, not, not so. Um, and, I mean, we could have sort of an Ananias and Sapphira program for our, our stewardship season. Uh, we could talk to Don Menendez about that. Um, and really, well, I'm not even going to get to it because we're going to get there eventually. But uh, what, what is helpful is just to see, I mean, Acts is a history book that lets us see, well, what, what did they do? How did they do ministry? Um, how did they handle this? And it's a very honest and, uh, and stark portrayal of how the early church did ministry. Um, there are seats down front, Frank and Caroline, if you want to <laughs> come sit. You know what? I, I love using people's names uh, for various reasons, but one of them is even before I came to the Advent, I would, one of the best Sunday schools that I'd ever heard was Paul Zoll's series on identity. If you haven't listened to it, you can get on the old website and, and find them. And, and he used to call people out by name. And when you're listening from off, uh, you would think, who in the world is that? And then I came here and I thought, that's the person who comes in late. Because <laughs> uh, Paul would always say, um, um, could you get the door, so-and-so? And, and that would always happen. So, so, so we're, we're, we're going through the book of Acts, and let's look at chapter 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. The word of the Lord. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff going on in this passage, and we're, uh, we're going to go ahead and hit it uh, pretty hard and hopefully talk about some, uh, some things and how it pertains to the Advent and for us. Uh, so let's see what the Lord would have us learn today. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, um, 
that uh, I might decrease and you might increase, and indeed we might see you open our ears and our eyes and our hearts and our minds to what you would have to say to us this day and always. In Jesus' name, amen. So Peter and John are going up to the temple, which seems like a very odd thing, because why do you go up to the temple? Primarily, how do we think about it? Right, sacrifice. And there's a fruit loop on my blazer. My suit jacket. I just don't, don't care. I just don't care anymore. <sighs> fruit, of the, fruit loop of the Spirit. So uh, they go up to sacrifice, right? That's what... <laughs> it's really bothering me. Uh, uh, they go up to sacrifice because that's, that's what you do at the temple and that's primarily where it's for. I mean, even Jews in their day were able to pray just about anywhere, but the temple was the place where you went to sacrifice, which is why it was uh, the... Uh, temple. And even after the temple was destroyed in 70 AD by Roman armies under the generalship of Titus, uh, Jews still prayed. It just was more on a synagogue system, uh, which existed back in Jesus' day. In fact, you can go to Capernaum today, and which is really interesting because the village is made out of, or what's left of it, is made out of volcanic rock. So it's sort of like a Hawaiian village in Galilee. Uh, it looks very interesting. And, uh, and you can see uh, the ruins of the synagogue uh, that uh, the site is the same. It's a different architectural style after Jesus' day, but a remarkable, beautiful place. And so they had this system. There would be teaching and there would be prayers uh, in place, but still up at appointed times of the day, faithful Jews would go up to the temple and pray. And that still happens today. If you go to Jerusalem, you go to the Wailing Wall, there are still men and women who go up, mostly men. There's a bigger section for them on the Wailing Wall uh, where they go and they pray to this day. So even though they're Christians, decidedly so, John and Peter are still taking place in the prayer life of Israel. Right? They don't see Christianity as a radical departure from the faith of Israel, but in fact a fulfillment of it. Right? They didn't see themselves as starting something new, although it was new, and they knew it to be altogether different but what they saw, how they saw Jesus and who Jesus was was a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. The one who had been foretold, who had come, the Messiah, who would take away the sin of the world, had come, had died, and had been raised again from the dead, and now had sent His Holy Spirit, who no longer lived, like the presence of God was no longer located definitively in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, but now lived where? In people. Right? In people, God now inhabits you and I as temples of the Holy Spirit. Um, we often play that down a little too much, I think. Uh, but if you were to say in Jesus' day and age, uh, you are now the temple of the Holy Spirit, that's a frightening thing. A frightening thing is the Holy of Holies. You didn't mess around with that. Right? You've all seen Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Shut your eyes. Don't look. Don't even... And yet now God inhabits his people. But we know that when Jesus died on the cross, what happened in the Holy of Holies? The temple curtain, it was torn in two, right? The veil was rent in two, and the Holy Spirit broke loose upon the people of God. And so even though they're not participating in the sacrificial life, there's no need for sacrifices anymore, even though they're still happening, the Christians are still are still participating in the prayer life of the Jewish faith. 
but not involving themselves in the sacrificial system. Because, of course, and normally at this point I would say, of course, and then move on, but I do want to stop and talk about uh, the radical notion of Jesus being the once and for all sacrifice. And I hit on it a little bit this morning in my sermon. Uh, But the whole idea of the sacrificial system is you had sacrifices for various things. Sometimes it was simply a grain offering. It was a thanksgiving that you would come and and do. I had a couple doing premarital counseling uh, who's not in this room. But uh, we were talking about the nature of marriage as a covenant. And they said, well, where in the wedding service does it say that the marriage is a covenant? And I said, it's actually at the very beginning where marriage is a bond and covenant established by God in creation. So... But this whole notion of, of a covenant is serious business in the Old Testament, so serious that in some instances there's one covenant that is made in the Old Testament that was made between human beings that what would happen is they'd go up to the temple, they would take their prized heifer, they'd cut it in half, separate the two with it kind of bleeding out, and the one party would walk between the two halves of the sacrificed heifer and say, may it be unto me as was done unto this heifer, if I were to break this covenant. Now, to bring that in the church for a wedding, that could be a little messy. Um, and, uh, and so we don't do that. Uh, and yet, that's a pretty vivid picture of what a covenant looks like, right? This is serious business. And you go to great lengths uh, for this outward display of what is being covenanted uh, between uh, two parties. And so there are very specific offerings, very specific sacrifices for specific things. Uh, purity issues, things like that. And uh, so it was great. You can read the Old Testament, and it was very helpful. If this happened or that happened, you could look it up and say, this is what I have to do. Here's the prescription for it. If it's sort of laid outside of the realm, there are people you could talk to and say, well, where does this fit in? Tell me what I need to do. Just write me a prescription for this, and I'll be on my way. And yet, at the same time, let's say you go up and you, you, you give up an offering or a sacrifice Uh, how long before you leave the proximity of the temple, before you make it home, do you find yourself in the same boat again? Right? So if if it were me, I'd have a whole room full of turtle doves, a pen full of lambs, and plenty of oxen for the going. Right? And especially if you were devout, right? Especially if you were devout, you you were more into the system because you understood it's necessary necessity for your spiritual life. And yet, you are always plagued with the problem is, how much is enough? And then you would read things in the Old Testament as a Jew, like uh, uh, sacrifices and offerings I do not desire, but a broken and contrite heart. Well, then what am I doing here with these sacrifices and offerings? Well, they're commanded and and I understand, you know, and that that the blood of, of you know, lambs and, and sheep and uh, goats and uh, oxen, I mean, do they, are they enough to cover my sins? Well, certainly not, not once and for all, but it was a constant process of, of having having to do that. And so when Jesus comes and he, he, he's the once and for all sacrifice, we say that in our communion service, that he gave himself up one oblation once and for all offered on our behalf. And there's no need for sacrifices anymore. That, that all is finished. It's been accomplished. Now, you and I don't sacrifice goats and, and things like, and, or livestock, I should say, uh, or anything of that sort anymore. And yet, uh, our heart is geared toward wanting to make up for our sins in some way. 
All right, to make up for, and even when we've been forgiven. Uh, Lauren, are you here? Okay, so for instance, <laughs> just kidding. It's not, it's not anything bad. It's Mother's Day of all days. So, um, so for instance, if I, if I do something to, to wrong Lauren, and I know that it's wrong, and she forgives me, better believe that I'm going to be extra nice for her a couple days just in case, right? I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, I might fix something a little bit nicer for dinner. I might send her flowers. I might do a lot of things, but I'm at least going to be on my P's and Q's, even though in my heart, I know she's, she's forgiven me, but there's a part of me that thinks what? But does she really? And, and I, I feel like, well, maybe if that, if that's enough, surely my behavior will ingratiate me to her. And not only that, what really gets me crazy is if I'm really good and I mind my P's and Q's, and then she gets upset with me about sort of, she brings it up again within a couple days' time. And I think, but you said you forgave me, and I've been doing all of this. You're not allowed, right? You're not allowed to, to talk to me about this because we're all on, on even And we spend our whole lives trying to keep things even in our lives, and even in the most mundane and small of things. And so for Jesus to come along and say, it's finished. There's no more keeping things even. Like it's a definitive word from the cross that it's finished, that you're forgiven. It's over, and it's, it's done with. Your, your sin has been remitted. It is as far away as the east is from the west. Your bill, your debt has been perfect timing, Lauren. Uh, your bill has been uh, paid in full. It's been paid in full, and it's gone. God relates to you now as if it never even happened. St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 says, Love keeps no record of wrongs. You and I both have filing cabinets, right? We're ready to file through and say, Well, this one time in June of 1996, you did this, right? Now, you've never done that, I'm sure, but, but that's what you're thinking. And, and yet with, with Jesus, it's over. It's done with. There's nothing that you can do to be more forgiven than you are right now. Right? There's nothing that you can do to be more forgiven uh, than you are right now. You're completely and totally forgiven so that God, the way that he deals with you now and the way that you're able to deal with him is that there's no junk. Right? There's no beef between the two of you as you relate to one another because Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice. And so with that in mind... One, that's got to change your prayer life. Right now, all of a sudden, if you're relating to God in a way that he actually does love me, he really does love me, not in a way of, well, if I behave myself or if I, if I do the right sacrifices or in today's parlance, if I go to church, if I read my Bible, if I go to Bible study, all of those things are very wonderful and good, uh, but they don't affect God's love for you in any way at all. Right? God's love for you is not if then. Right? If you do this, then I will love you. Right? Think of, there are a lot of relationships that operate that way. If you love me, then you would fill in the blank. Right? So um, let's think of an example that doesn't relate to me. Uh, there, there are plenty of, uh, you know, if, uh, let's just think of something very trivial. And I've heard this before. If you loved me, then you would put your laundry away, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's been said before in, in relationships. And, 
and yet, I mean, start, think about that for a minute. Um, the only way that you love me, or one of the ways in which you love me, is whether or not I put my laundry away. Now, that is a strong relationship. Right? <laughs> that is a marriage that is built to last. Right? Um, uh, and, and if I don't put my laundry away, then that must mean I don't, I don't love you. Now, on the other hand, uh, you can say that that's descriptive of a relationship, right? Because if your spouse says, look, it would really be great for me if, if, you, if you would put your laundry away, right? If you love your spouse, that you'll, you'll want to do that, right? It doesn't mean that you'll do it necessarily constantly and, and, and with great devotion, uh, but, but your heart begins to be geared in a way that, that you do. I mean, I'm a totally different man than when I married Lauren, right? That's the whole thing about the two becoming one that I find so fascinating, that at this point in our marriage, I can't think of myself apart from my wife, right? Somebody asked me, uh, well, where, where do you think you'd be if you didn't marry Lauren? And I said, well, someplace. I, I really can't think, and if you've been married for any amount of time, that's, I'm sure, like, you have no idea what you would be like, where you would be, uh, what you would be doing apart from your spouse, such as the impact that they have on you. And the Bible talks about iron sharpening iron. You know, I just thought that would be some nice lathe. It's like ding, 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 right? That's what iron sharpening iron is like. But it's a refining process, and the same is true with God. Right? St. Paul does say that the closest institution we have on earth to show us God's love for us is marriage. So it's not an if-then love that God has for us. And yet, when we find ourselves in a relationship with God, that does become descriptive. Right? God doesn't love us simply because we read our Bibles. But because God loves us, we find ourselves at least wanting to spend more time in God's Word. We want to worship God. Uh, we, we want to do all of those things to further and deepen our relationship with him. And even though we know like, they're, not, they're not buying us anything spiritually. And so this enhanced prayer life of being able to go to God in prayer and for him to actually want to listen to us and to hear us and, and want to uh, be a father unto us and not somebody who is far off and distant uh, where we need, uh, we do on the one hand need a go-between, Jesus Christ, but that's all we need, that we can actually relate to God directly through God the Son. And incidentally, as they are coming up, they come through a gate of the temple that is called what? Beautiful, the beautiful gate. You can go there to Israel today and you can see it. It's not the same gate that was there in their time, but it is a very beautiful gate. It's walled up. Uh, now, but it comes down from the Mount of Olives and up into the Temple Mount. And uh, this is the, uh, the gate uh, that we now call Golden, probably, probably, uh, according to archaeologists and just geography. And this is the gate that Jesus came through on Palm Sunday. All right, so this is the triumphant gate because uh, the belief is that the Messiah was uh, that the Messiah will enter Jerusalem through this gate. Now, that's already happened. Uh, and then at some point later on down the road, um, uh, the Turkish, the uh, Ottoman Sultan, uh, Suleiman, uh, walled it up and then put a cemetery in front of it. And a lot of people think that that's because he was trying to prevent um, Elijah from coming through there uh, when, when he returned uh, because one... It was walled, and two, because there's a cemetery there, and Elijah was descended from Aaron, which means he was of the priesthood, 
and uh, there was a misconception that priests can't go through cemeteries, which they actually can. They shouldn't, but they can. They just have to go through some ritual purification. But all that to say, that's probably not true. The sultan probably walled up the beautiful gate, the gate called Golden, for defensive purposes. But regardless, you go there today, and it's right at the foot where the Dome of the Rock is, the, the big mosque. Uh, and there you can go and you can see that gate. And so as Peter and John came through, it's a very different scene now because the last time they came through, uh, the place was lined with people and, uh, and there were coats over the, over the uh, road and people were waving palm branches and singing Hosanna in the highest. And as they come up and enter the temple, they see this lame beggar who was lame from birth. And how did he get there? He had good friends. He had good friends who laid him there day after day. There are a couple instances where this happens, where uh, a beggar is able to get to where they are because they had friends who placed them there. There's the wonderful scene in Mark's gospel where the invalid whose friends take him to Jesus and they get to the house and they can't get into the house. So what do they do? They dig a hole in the roof. I mean, it's a wonderful scene where you can imagine Jesus teaching and there's just roof falling down on him. And, and all of a sudden, a hole and then a head looking down. Yeah, he's here. And then lowering him down in. Um, uh, um, I wonder what, whether insurance covered that for the homeowner. Um, I'm dealing with American Home Shield these days. But anyway, so this beggar had been laid there. Uh, and it's a pretty good place to be because you've got a couple things. You've got a lot of foot traffic. You've got a lot of foot traffic. Uh, and not just that, you have believers, right? You have religious people. Uh, we experience this every single Sunday at the Advent, don't we? Um, our neighbors uh, in, in the area uh, like to frequent churches, churches on Sunday morning, one, because they know that people will be there, and, um, and two, uh, they expect uh, that Christians will be generous. And that's a, a, a good expectation uh, but, uh, you know, begging, uh, I don't know about you, but uh, it's not the most comfortable of, of scenes, right? So you can imagine Peter, I mean, Peter and John, human nature hasn't changed in thousands of years. If you're walking by the lame beggar, uh, my propensity would be to avoid eye contact, right? And just sort of maybe even sidestep. If I were Peter, try to get John between me and the beggar so he looks bad um, and looks like, uh, looks like the jerk. Uh, you know, when you're... Um, when you're at the stoplight on uh, where Lakeshore turns into Mount Brook Parkway and, and there's the sign, uh, the person, and they're looking at you and you're wearing a collar, like, you, I mean, you, Lord, change it to green now. Like, change it to green. Or, um, although it's tricky now because nobody carries cash, right? I, in, I, in two years' time, they'll have little debit card machines. Guarantee you. They'll have debit card machines. I won't say which parishioner picked them up one time, but picked them up and gave them a ride because it was raining. And the person got real honest and said that they made a lot of money uh, doing that. So people in Birmingham are being generous uh, uh, in that. And, of course, there's the uh, – what was the name of that Sherlock Holmes uh, story about the coat that gets thrown in the Thames River? And it's full of pennies, and it sinks to the bottom. And when they pull it up, they can't figure it out, and the woman's husband has gone missing, and he's a, a lawyer in London. And it turns out the husband – is a beggar because he can make mo more money being a beggar than he can being a lawyer in London. And, uh, and so I think that's true. Uh, there are people who certainly make a pretty good living 
off of being a beggar. And uh, I think that if anybody in Jerusalem made a pretty good living, it was, it was this guy. It was this guy. And so as they are going uh, through, uh, Peter uh, says, says this. It says he directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. Look at us. This was not a manipulative beggar. He was lame, which means he was seated. He probably had his head down. The pose of a beggar, which you can still see in, in that area of the world, is to have the bowl up and with their head down. Uh, and uh, they just sort of wait for the sound of the coin to drop. And they might say, thank you or God bless you. Uh, but uh, begging was, was not something to be proud of by any sense. And so uh, there's a flow of people trying to get into the temple. And imagine a flow of people trying to get into the Advent. And all of a sudden, everything is stopped. And Peter and John uh, stop. And they look at this man intensely. And they say, look at us. Now, why were they asked to look at us? Well, one, what was the man asking for? Money. Uh, he was not really looking for uh, any sort of friendship, relationship, any word of advice, any word of encouragement. Uh, he was simply looking uh, for money as far as the scriptures tell us, which is not necessarily a shallow thing. You need money to live. And Peter stops everything and says, look at us. There are times in the New Testament where Jesus fixes his gaze intently upon people, right? looks at them. Uh, one incident that comes to mind is uh, the rich young ruler who says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, Follow these commands. All these I have done since I was a young man. And the scripture says, Jesus looked at him. Jesus looked at him. And so when one of the apostles or when Jesus looks at you, it means I have something to say to you, and it's a heart-to-heart -heart communication. I have a specific word that is for you. I don't know what's happening in the world today when it comes to communication. Uh, I don't know that people really talk to each other anymore. Um, you know, I'm waiting for the, I'm sure there's a New Yorker cartoon out there that has the husband and wife standing next to one another with their phones, and one says, but didn't you get my text? Um, you know, I mean, there's going to be something like that, and that is happening. You see people out to dinner, and they've got their whatever device it is, and uh, nobody talks to anybody anymore. And so I'm afraid that when you have something to say to somebody, when you have something to say to somebody, what do you, how do you want to say it? I need to look you in the eye. Right? Not, not to intimidate you, uh, but, uh, but because what I have to say to you is, is that important that um, not, I need to be in your presence and I need to look you in the eye. I need to relate to you as a person. Look at us. So one, Peter's acknowledging that this man is a human being who has real needs. Lift up your head and look at me. And he says, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have you. What I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. That, that, that alone, let's, let's go home, uh, is enough. But he has a word that is specific to this man, and it's not a word that comes from him. And so One of the great things that you can see about Peter, especially early on in the book of Acts, is he's, he's still Peter, and all of a sudden he's filled with this power that is not of him. And it has to be God. I mean, that's a bold thing to say. Right, we, you can turn on the TV in the middle of the night and you can see people getting pushed over and, 
You know, people jumping out of wheelchairs and throwing their crutches away. And I still believe that God does that, uh, but maybe not on the scale and the exploitation level as, as, as is perceived often. Uh, but that takes a lot of guts to tell somebody to get up and walk who's been lame since birth. Right? That's one of those things, you probably shouldn't say that <laughs> unless you know it's going to happen. Right? And so Peter, filled with a confidence that's not my own, uh, not his own, says, get up and walk, and it happens. And I wonder, if Peter didn't have a conversation with John later on, and John said, how did you, how, I didn't, I was scared of my mind, I didn't want to say it, it just came out, and then he walked, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> just, just, let's leave it as it is. Uh, there was a lady who was visiting Beaufort, South Carolina, and uh, the receiving line in Beaufort was, was terrible. Um, it, it literally lasted 45 minutes long, and the church is a historic church, so you couldn't stand inside where it was cool. Uh, you had to stand outside in the dead of summer in South Carolina, and we had a receiving line after every single service. We had three services, and it was, it was, we kept the dry cleaners in business. And, and people would, but it was great because you would be, you were able to connect with people and you found out about what was going on in their lives and, and they would linger a little bit and you'd kind of have to push them on. And, and, uh, apparently one lady came out of church one Sunday and she said, I want you to know that I'm in Beaufort because of you. And of course I'm waiting to hear about how wonderful my preaching is and teaching and things like that and just, uh, whatever. She was living up in New England and she said, she said about six months ago I was just visiting Beaufort and I came out of the receiving line, and you said to me, uh, God wants you to be in Beaufort. I had, no, I had no idea what this woman was talking about. I thought she was crazy, because I thought never in a million years would I ever say something like that. That is inappropriate, and it is certainly bold. And, uh, and she's convinced that she's like, you told me that I needed to be in Beaufort, and I prayed about it. And felt like that was God speaking uh, uh, through you, and uh, and praise the Lord. And in fact, they she ended up uh, she'd been single her whole life, and she was then at that point seventy years old. Uh, came married uh, a wonderful man in our congregation, and uh, and with tears in her eyes at her wedding uh, reception, uh, she said, "You know, if it weren't for uh, for God speaking through Andrew Pearson, I wouldn't be married this day." And I'm thinking, this is getting pretty deep. Um, <laughs> Like, oh, and I'm waiting, like, what if bad stuff starts happening? Then what do you say? Like, if it weren't for Andrew Pearson. Uh, <clears throat> uh, all that to say is that um, uh, I think that you know that it's the Holy Spirit when you have no idea what, what's going on. When the left hand doesn't know the right hand is, what the re- left hand doesn't know the right hand is doing, that's when you know that God is actually involved and that he's working, and that he's active. And this is one of those situations with Peter, because nobody in their right mind would simply say, get up and walk. I mean, it would be a cruel and insensitive thing to say in your own strength, and yet Peter does it. And he takes the man by the right hand. The detail is wonderful. I mean, that, that, I mean it's painting a picture in your mind that he just didn't take him by the hands, but he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And the man... Immediately, his feet and ankles were made strong, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk and enter the temple with them to walk with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Well, there are things that we think that we need in life. And what we really need in life, and, and they're often two different things. 
And I don't think in my own strength I have the objectivity to really know what I need. I mean, I'm aware that a lot of the things that I think I need, I really don't need. Uh, But even the things that if I really were honest, I still don't know that I can say for certain that that's really what what I need in my life. Partly because I sell God short. So this man, his prayer life probably was, God, I could use a little bit of extra change today. Or God, I could use a new mat uh, I, I, you know, I, uh, God, I thank you for my friends. I pray that you give me a, a, a better heart uh, for being so grateful for them, for transporting me. God, I pray that it doesn't rain on me today. Right? Things, things like that. And then those are real, deep, uh, meaningful prayers. Um, and maybe every once in a while he would think, um, God, I pray, that, I pray that you heal me today. Uh, but never really is, is a possibility. And so... God has a way of doing things that are completely off the radar screen. Right? And, and uh, the Bible certainly says, you have not because you ask not. Right? And I think what the Bible is saying, it's not saying you don't have it because you didn't ask for it specifically. Because if that's the case, we're all doomed. We're all doomed. But what, what it's saying is that you have not uh, because our hearts are in a place where we can't even fathom what God is able to do in our lives. As Paul says in Ephesians, that he's able to do more than we could ever infinitely ask or imagine. Right? It's, it's even beyond our, our cognitive ability to understand what God is actually able to do in our lives. He's able to do that which the world says is impossible. Right? What the world says is impossible, God is actually able to do. And it's simply a spoken word I don't have what you think you need, but what I do have, I give to you. I do think that there's a missional statement being, uh, being named here because at, at the very bottom of our lives and in our hearts, what we ultimately need is Jesus. And I know that a lot of people don't like the bumper sticker that Jesus is the answer, and it's, it's right to ask, well, then what's the question? Uh, but... Um, he really is. Like at the very bottom, the very core of our being, uh, what the world needs is Jesus Christ. And if that is not uh, the bedrock and foundation of everything that we say and we do at the Advent, then the rest of it is for naught. Because the silver and gold at the end of the day, it's all going to burn. It's all going to burn. And all those other things that I think that I need in my life are all going to burn. But again, the if-then statement uh, what we find is that when, when Jesus is at the center and is the foundational cornerstone at which we do our ministry and the way that we live our lives, out of that flows compassion and mercy and justice. And so uh, Jesus uh, has, has done it before. Um, the invalid is laid before him, uh, and, uh, and he would say, uh, your sins are forgiven, all right? And everybody's looking around me and like, what well, his friends brought him, uh, that's not why, um, why he's here. For sin- he's here to get up on the map, but he says, uh, so that you know who I am, your sins are forgiven. And now I say to you, take up your mat and walk.
So Jesus is not looking at us as some sort of spiritual statistic. He actually does care about who we are as human beings. He sees this man and speaks by the power of the Holy Spirit to Peter and empowers Peter to speak this word into this man's life and the fruit of it which it allows him to walk. Right? This man gets up and walks and the result of the man experiencing this healing is what? High five? Uh, now I'm going to go get some job training. Uh, now I'm going to be able to do all of those things. I'm actually going to go run hurdles now. Uh, I'm going to join a walking club at, at the Brookwood Mall. I'm going to do all these things, uh, whatever it is. No, he immediately leaps up and he begins to praise God because it wasn't just a healing done in his ankles and his feet and in his legs. It was a, a total holistic healing that God did something in his life that was a whole and not in part. That his whole life was transformed, that God treated him as a whole person and not just as a spiritual statistic. And his response is to get up and to praise God. And people looked at him and were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And so, here at the Advent, uh, and I pray in my life, um, um, are we praying with a spirit of expectation? To be honest, uh, a lot of times I'm not. Uh, my prayers can be rote. You know, I can, uh, I feel like, we, and I try not to do this with our children, but, you know, our children have already, I mean, they know at a young age. When we say prayers at night, it's like a checklist. And if I don't pray for Nana or 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 pop, or bebop, or, you know, they, they, they bring it to my attention. You didn't pray for them, right? You got to check it off the list. And so even at a young age, I'm thinking, well, how do I impart to my children this notion that it's not a rote list? And how do I pray in such a way that my children's eyes and the people around me, their eyes are open, that I'm praying for the impossible with a fervent expectancy? And that my prayers are not prayers of resignation. When it seems like a situation is too far gone, I think, well, God, I just, you know, all those I just prayers, I just, um, I just do this and I just do that. And uh, sometimes that is the prayer. Lord, I don't know what to pray, and so I entrust this to you. You have to do something. Uh, but there are times when, um, when I try to tell God what to do. Well, God, the situation's too far gone, so if you could just make it nice for those around us and, and do the best that you can, just do some damage control, that would be great. When rather than uh, God, convert them or kill them, right? <laughs> Uh, now, I've never prayed that, um, uh, but, but God, do something great and do that work in their lives. And God, open up my heart to look with a spirit of expectancy that you actually will be, that you will move in a way that uh, indeed you are mighty to save. And so that's what God does in his church. It may not always manifest as it did in the days of Pentecost and the early church, but God has not changed a bit. God has not changed a bit. And if he can use somebody like Peter to speak a word of transformation into the life of a lame beggar, he most certainly can use us to speak a word of transformation into a fallen and broken Birmingham that so desperately needs to hear, silver and gold have I none, although we do have it, uh, but in the name of Jesus, uh, get up and walk. Questions, comments, concerns? I'm just reminded of Jesus' question to the, do you want to be healed? And I think a lot of us don't want to be healed. 
Yeah, in John's Gospel, the guy at the at um, the pool of Bethsaida, where um, he asked, "Do you want to be healed?" Uh, and then that's an interesting case because what Jesus is reading into, and what he understands is that there was a part of that man who actually didn't want to be healed. Because you remember, he said, "Well, I don't have anyone to take me down to the pool when the waters are stirred." That that was a lie. I mean, they had friends that laid him there. There were people all around, um, but there was a part of him where that that. Um, the handicap in his life had become so part of his identity that he couldn't imagine himself apart from it. And there, there are those of us in the world who, who have something that we pray God remove from our lives, but we, there's a spirit of fear that, but God, if it was removed from my life, what would my life be like? I, I, I don't know what my life would be like apart from that handicap. Now try to remove that from what I said about marriage. That's not what I'm talking about, but it's a similar, similar principle. that can mean so much to us in the Word. And one of the details that I've always loved about the temple, and I'm sure many people in the room know this, but that temple curtain that was of such immense weight and was woven without seams, it was torn from top to bottom. And when you think of that visual, and again, it's indisputably the Lord at work yeah. on yeah. every level. Yeah, it was at least four inches thick. Um, and so it was, uh, it was really a significant, yeah, there was no, it wasn't sort of like, well, it just, it tore, oops, uh, I mean, it was, it was an intentional, t- I mean, it was ripped from top to bottom, absolutely. Okay, go in peace to love and serve the Lord.